from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is John Small, and I am the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. So a lot of people talk about the Safe Banking Act. And last April, the U.S. House of Representatives approved a bill, 321 to 101, that agreed to protect banks that service state legal marijuana businesses from being penalized by federal regulators. And this act is known as the Safe Banking Act. And We hear about it all the time, but what really is it and what is its future in America? To tackle some of these difficult questions, I have a fantastic expert. Rachel Gillette is joining us, and Rachel is the chair of Greenspoon Martyrs Cannabis Law Practice, and she's really one of the first attorneys in the nation to dedicate her entire practice to the cannabis industry. Bravo for that. And since 2010, Rachel has helped license cannabis and hemp businesses with their licensing, permitting, and regulatory compliance, business law and transactions, and contract drafting and review, tax litigation. The list goes on. She helps businesses with all sorts of the complicated legal challenges that they face in the cannabis industry. But today we're going to talk about the State Banking Act. Welcome, Rachel, to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So just to step back a little bit about who you are, that was a pretty bold move. Now it seems like a very smart move to become one of the first cannabis lawyers. But back then, it might have been a little bit of a risky career move. So tell me a little bit about what inspired you to jump to the cannabis side and change your practice entirely over to that. Back in the day, it was a risky career move. I was actually told by one of my professors that I was going to lose my law license if I started a firm focusing on representing cannabis businesses. But really how it came about was I graduated right when the Great Recession was starting. So it was a really tough time to graduate law school. I was in my 30s at the time. I was an older student. I've always been really entrepreneurial. I actually got a, the only job I could find was in a tax controversy firm. We had about 24 attorneys. It was not fun work. Everybody had problems. And um, at the time, Colorado, people were starting to, let me just say this, kind of exploit the loopholes of our legalization, our medical law that passed back in 2000. And so we were starting to see marijuana businesses pop up everywhere. And really what was happening is people were acting as caregivers. There were no limitations on how many people you could caregive for. And so people were starting to hang up shingles and have storefronts and the cities in the state were kind of freaking out. Like, what are we going to do? And what ended up happening was the state of Colorado and the state legislature passed what's known as uh, House Bill 10-1284, which was the first, we were the first state in the nation to actually license and regulate for-profit cannabis businesses. A lot of people don't understand that Colorado was the first state to do this, but we were. California actually was was operating as a nonprofit model up until just a couple years ago. So we were kind of groundbreaking in that way. We didn't really know what the federal government was going to do at the time. I knew that this was going to be a new area of practice. And so I quit my job, borrowed a little money from my mom and started basically a loft practice to represent people who are now who are now going to have to apply for licenses and become legitimate business people by getting licensed in the cannabis industry. And uh, that was the beginning of a long journey to where we are today, which is now many, many states with adult use. 
Colorado was the first state by about an hour to legalize adult use cannabis. So it's been really fun to kind of go on that journey. But I was told in the early days that it was very risky because attorneys aren't really allowed to give advice to things that are illegal under the law, including federal law. And as we know, cannabis remains illegal under federal law. A lot of law firms really want a cannabis practice now. It's sort of as the years gone by and more states have legalized, sort of opened the door to more law firms getting into this space, which is great because it, it means more professional services to the industry. And really, it's a tie that can lift all boats. There's plenty of, of room for a lot of different professionals out there. And frankly, I'm glad to see that the, the industry is being served well by, by lawyers and law firms. I'm glad to see that people are actually getting lawyers uh, before they get into the business. Yeah, that's a good you, <laughs> you need to have a lawyer. They need it in a lot of ways because the reality is it's, it's a very complicated area of practice and every single thing that you do comes with this regulatory overlay that you have to be considerate of. And it's, it's different in every state. And it's the same with hemp as well. There's, it's different laws in each state and we don't have uniformity. So you really have to have an understanding of what the regulators allow, what they don't allow, et cetera. So it's fun. It's a fun area of practice. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the Safe Banking Act. And let's talk about the um, challenge here. So explain what the problem is that this act, and then we'll explain what this act is sort of seeking to rectify. But talk about what the problem a lot of cannabis businesses face in Colorado and across the country in the legal cannabis space. Sure. So the problem is they are underbanked. They're not unbanked, but the industry itself is not, there aren't enough banks to serve the industry, right? So a couple things. Cannabis businesses are very cash intensive because people, first of all, they can't get credit card processing. People aren't really keen on putting cannabis transactions on some kind of card that so a lot of the transactions are done in cash. So that makes banks really nervous that they're cash in intensive businesses. But also banks really, believe it or not, when I first started practicing in this space back in 2010, there were banks that were like, sure, we'll bank a cannabis business, no problem. It, that went through about 2011. And then we started to hear sort of these grumblings that banks were getting pressure from federal banking regulators to shut all of those accounts down. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, there were a number, there were probably two years there where there was just no access to banking whatsoever. If you had a bank account in the industry, it's likely your bank didn't put two and two together and didn't know that you were cannabis, or you might have been using it in a limited way, so they wouldn't figure out it was cannabis. But there were a number of years there that you just could not get a bank account as openly as a cannabis business. In 2014, we had two things happen. We had the Cole Memorandum come out, as well as a FinCEN memo, which essentially said, I always say it gave the orange light, not really the yellow light, but the orange light banks to be able to bank the cannabis industry. It sort of provided guidelines that if banks were going to bank the cannabis industry, that they had to follow certain compliance protocols. They had to issue what's called MSARs or marijuana suspicious activity reports. They had to make sure that the businesses they were banking with were compliant with their state law. So there are all these sort of things and regulations and protocols put up for banks to have to be able to bank the industry. And unfortunately, there weren't a lot of banks that were like, yeah, let's do this. There was sort of like, whoa, that sounds really hard and really expensive. So why would we do this? Let's just continue not to bank the industry until it's legal under federal law. I don't think anybody expected it to take this long, but obviously it's still not legal under federal law. So we end up in a predicament where you have a huge multi-billion dollar industry 
in multiple states and there's a lack of access to banking. And that's not because banks don't want to bank the industry. It's not because they can't bank the industry. It's because they have to set up some strict compliancy programs to do so. Monitoring the accounts is expensive. It takes time for them to develop all of this stuff. So there just aren't enough banks that are willing to do it. And then you have a lot of the big banks that just aren't interested at all until it becomes federally legal. So welcome to an industry that's still underbanked and still very cash intensive. Why do banks not like cash? I know you're not a banker, but what, what's your take on that? I mean, it's just hard to track. I mean, I, I can tell you why the IRS doesn't like cash because I deal with it all the time. It's difficult. So I handle a lot of audits of the cannabis industry for the IRS, you know, not for the IRS, but against the IRS working with the IRS as they conduct their audit. And cash intensive businesses are difficult because sometimes I've, I've dealt with situations in audits where they've had 14, 15 different bank accounts or they don't have a bank account. And so it's hard to kind of follow the money and the audit trail. And it just makes it difficult for all, both sides, the IRS, as well as obviously the cannabis business. I think if you ask cannabis businesses, do you want a bank account or would you rather operate in cash? Almost all of them are going to say, I want a bank account. <laughs> I need a bank account. I don't want to have armored cars. And yeah, I mean, yeah, some of the things that have to happen as a result. Yeah. So, I mean, luckily in a number of states, there have been banks that have come out and they're willing to take on the accounts, but you could call the six or seven banks in the state of Colorado and most of them have waiting lists. So if you're a new cannabis business, it's going to take you months to get an account and you're going to have to provide a whole bunch of compliance related documentation to show that you're going to operate legitimately, et cetera. So it makes it very, very difficult for, for cannabis businesses, especially new cannabis businesses. So what does the Safe Banking Act do that makes it less difficult? Well, the Safe Banking Act is going to provide really protections to the banks. It's going to essentially prohibit a banking regulator from penalizing a depository institution from providing banking services to state licensed or legal cannabis businesses. So it's really providing that protection, which will hopefully incentivize more banks to take on the industry. Big banks like Chase or Bank of America or those other types of banks want to see this type of protection before they're going to offer services to cannabis companies. Right. And is this the fact that Congress passed it, I think, is is kind of amazing, given that, you know, the government has not always been so the federal government has not always been such a in favor of cannabis legalization in any way. I know we have a new administration. What's your, but but that vote that I read out is certainly more bipartisan than most bills that you hear about, especially nowadays. So what is your take? I know you're not in Washington, but in talking to your colleagues in Washington about why that happened. Like why did, why was the Safe Banking Act pushed through so quickly in the, in the Biden administration? And is there sort of a, a big movement in among lawmakers right now to kind of start figuring this out? So it's past the House. I think it's still it still needs to be introduced on the Senate floor, but it has co-sponsors, including seven Republicans, which is great. How many things do we have in Washington that are have bipartisan support? Not that many, so that's great. I think people understand why we need it. First of all, a cash-intensive business is a safety issue for everybody. It's a safety issue for the patrons that go there. It's a safety issue for the regulators that go there as well. It's a safety issue for the employees that work there. Unfortunately, if you don't have a bank, you're going to have to put your cash somewhere. Where are you going to put it? Who knows? I certainly don't know. But I mean, the IRS has even made 
made sort of accommodations for cannabis businesses to be able to pay their, their taxes in cash. But it's a safety issue for them too. So it's a safety issue for all of the people that work at the tax taxing authorities in the states or the local jurisdictions or with the federal government to ensure that they, they've got to take in the cash for payment. So I think that people can recognize on both sides of the aisle that this is a safety issue, that it really doesn't make sense. And it's really, it's good for everybody, including if you're anti-cannabis, to make sure that you can track what's going on in these businesses and that they're they're acting in compliance and that they don't have oodles of cash hanging around uh, that makes them a target for nefarious elements, I suppose. So I think that really everybody recognizes that. But I also think there's probably a lot of people in the banking industry that want to be able to work with this industry because they see its growth. They see the amount of money that it is transacting. And so if you were a banker and, and you could find your bank cannabis, I think you'd be interested. <laughs> so you want to make sure that you don't lose your bank as a result of it or get in violation of uh, banking laws. So I mean, it all comes down to money. I mean, right. I mean, the banks can make money off of this industry. I mean, of course, everybody wants safety and that's wonderful. But also, you know, there's money to be made on all ends here. I think it's better for the taxing authorities as well. If they if they can conduct an audit and there's a banking trail, that's that's good for them as well. So I, I see it as a complete win win across the board for any type of stakeholder in this industry. So what, you know, I know, I know you're not necessarily a, a lawmaker who's going to vote no on this, but what is the hesitancy? I mean, so what I've been reading is that in, it now needs to go to the Senate. Now, everything in Washington takes forever anyway, so we can't expect these things to fly through. But what I'm reading is that the Senate, you might not, they might not even vote on it. There's a lot of hesitancy and it's not like, doesn't have this huge amount of momentum going into the Senate, even though it passed pretty sizably in the House. Is that your impression as well? Or do you think that they're going to take it up this year. So I think it will pass, but it may pass as sort of ride along language in a must pass bill. I don't know that it will pass on its own. There are some challenges. I think the timing of it is they don't want to introduce it to the Senate floor until possibly Schumer is able to get his bill, his big marijuana legalization bill at least introduced. I think there's some wheeling and dealing between the, the chair of the, the House Financial Services and the Banking Committee as far as I think it's criminal justice reform negotiations. So I think there's some a lot of things that are kind of tied to getting this through. I think eventually it will. It makes sense, but I don't know that it will ever be voted on, uh, or at least in this congressional session, that it will be voted on on its own. But you know, I'm not a politician. I'm not a politician. So. Yeah, thank goodness we're both not politicians. But you think that's just because there's too much putting your name behind a bill that's sort of pro marijuana is too politically risky for a lot of politicians? Is that why that stigma still exists? It's hard to believe for us like that are in the bubble of cannabis that there's like still a stigma about cannabis, but it still exists in certain states in certain voting. So is that you think that's why it will never be like a standalone bill? I think it could be a standalone bill. I just don't know that it will. That's how we get it passed. And I don't think it's about like it being pro marijuana. I think it's more pro bank than yeah. Marijuana. Oh, I agree. I just think people can spin it. You know, maybe it's like political ammunition. Oh, he got behind the Safe Banking Act, which legal, you know, and you could just see the, the political ads, right? Like of all these like stoners. I don't know. Like if somebody wants to use that as a weapon, you know, I guess they could say. It. But again, to me, I agree. It's a pro-bank act that just happens to benefit the cannabis industry. I'm just wondering if some politicians are scared of 
scared of it. Well, I think anything that's related to cannabis, there's always some hesitancy, usually on on one side of the aisle more than others. But I think the reality is that most people live in a state where there is some form of marijuana legalization, whether it be medical marijuana or adult use marijuana. But I think the majority of the U.S. population lives in a state where there's legalized cannabis in some form. And so the reality is that you kind of have to, as a representative democracy, I think, Our representatives have to be looking at what their constituents think is important. And I think this is important for a lot of reasons. I think there's a number of, I also think getting rid of 280E is also a very important. Talk about that for a minute. What does 280E do? Sure. 280E is a a provision of the tax code uh, that essentially says that cannabis businesses can't take their ordinary or necessary business deductions. So essentially they are typically taxed at a much higher rate. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's definitely a putative tax provision. Unfortunately, it's applying, it's being applied to the legal cannabis industry when it was actually passed in 1982, which was the height of the drug war. It was really meant to be a, a tool to go after black market illegal drug dealers, which arguably state licensed and state legal sanctioned cannabis businesses operating in compliance with state law are not those types of individuals or businesses. So it's really kind of ridiculously applied in this day and age. I mean, it's over 40 something years old and it just doesn't make a lot of sense as, and it it also just, you know, unfortunately it has the effect of really subsidizing the black market. And that's what I want the federal government when they're thinking about this to think about is that they're really, because the IRS is only applying 280E to state legal cannabis businesses, they're not applying it to who it was originally intended to go to, to punish, which was illegal operators or black market sellers. So it's really giving them a pass. It's disincentivizing people from getting into the legal marketplace. It, it allows people on the black market to sell their product for less, essentially, because they don't have the punitive tax provision. It keeps marijuana businesses from being able to offer things like benefits, employee benefits, because those things may be disallowed under 280E. We do not like 280E. It's really bad. (laughs) That isn't in the Safe Banking Act, right? That's like a separate issue that needs to come up in a kind of... It is a separate issue. And I, I feel like maybe that needs to be snuck into some take a ride. Well, there's about to be a huge infrastructure bill. Can't we just like, yeah, kind of slip that little no 280E in there? Well, speaking of, you mentioned, we talked about, you had fingers crossed, you know, you've said that you've made many predictions and you never know what's going to happen in this crazy industry. But you've probably been following legalization forever. Do you feel like we're anywhere closer to that? You know, I mean, I'm take, we'll take what we can get at this point and Safe Banking Act would certainly be a very good thing going forward for the industry and for banks. But where is your take stance on like legalization in general, like a federal legalization? Do you think that's possible the next three years? So this is a really important conversation that I think people in the industry, people who are employed by the industry need to be talking about because who was it? Reagan, who said, you know, that's the scariest words are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Right. (laughs) And I think that rings true with the federal legalization framework. I think it could go a bunch of different directions, but the reality is it could really screw things up in a lot of ways if we don't if we're not thoughtful about it, and if we don't do it right. I think there's a lot of interests that have to be addressed, including social equity, including righting the wrongs of the drug war, including reinvesting in communities that have been really 
affected negatively by the failed drug war. But we also have to think about all the work that all these states have already put into legalizing cannabis and their regulatory frameworks. So in my perfect world, we'd get rid of 280E, we'd allow banking and the federal government will sort of get out of the way of states that want to legalize and say, you know, we're not going to criminalize this at the federal level. (laughs) If we start seeing, you know, it's interesting because just this morning I was reading an article of how many regulations does it take to get a beer in a liquor store? And I think it's something like thousands of regulations. And they did a study on it. So I was sort of like, oh gosh, that really sounds like what the cannabis industry can end up with when when we have federal legalization. So it's almost like, yeah, you watch what you wish for. Maybe it's better the system we have now. I mean, certainly we'd want every state to be legal, but every election cycle, more and more states become legal. But there are these inherent problems within cannabis because it's federally illegal that still plague us, like you said. But if we can get rid of those one at a time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the right answer. I really don't. All I know is we should be having the conversation. And I think a lot of it comes down to educating your legislators, your Congress people, so that they understand what cannabis is like, what it really is like, what the industry is like. I think there's always sort of, and I think you have to do this on a state basis as well, because, you know, I'm always complaining about sort of new states that come online and they, you know, create these regulatory systems that don't actually end up getting them where they intended to go. Like all the, in these states where they have these competitive licensing applications and they've, they've sort of decided that they're going to issue some licenses to social equity applicants. I was just talking to a colleague in Illinois and like that, that program hasn't even gotten off, off, off the ground because the way they did their licensing and how they made it competitive, the first place losers are now suing and everybody's like, it's just delaying the implementation of this program. It's not having the impact that we wanted it to have on righting those wrongs and those communities that have been disproportionately negatively affected by the drug war. So there's just so much work that we have to do. (laughs) I'll never forget when somebody called me up. I think it was a reporter the day after we passed Amendment 64. And I was at the time, I was the chair of executive director of Colorado Normal, which is the state chapter of the National Organization to Reform Marijuana Laws. And he goes, well, now that it's legal, what are you going to do? Do you have, are you going to be, are you going to be out of a job? And I'm like, hell no, this is when it just starts, right? We have so much more work to do to get where we really want to go. And it can look a lot of different ways. I'm not saying one state's better than the other, but I think we truly have seen this laboratory of democracy. And I personally feel like we shouldn't regulate like plutonium. We should really be thinking about free markets and allowing people opportunities, giving people small businesses opportunities. It's just one of those things where we, we have to continue to have the conversation and continue to to incorporate everybody into that conversation so we can get to the ultimately the right place. Well, I'm glad we're having the conversation here. Thank you so much, Rachel, for taking the time to talk to us and clarify a lot of these kind of complicated issues. If people want to find out more about Greenspoon Martyr, about you, where should they go? Well, they could go to Greenspoon Martyr and look me up under Rachel Gillette. And that's just like the razor blade. Is that your family? (laughs) Unfortunately not. Damn it. You wouldn't be talking to me now. You'd be like, yeah, both somewhere. Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, I'm I'm always happy to have the conversation, and I'm excited to see where this industry grows and how it continues to grow. And it's it's certainly a fun area of practice for sure. All right. Well, thanks again, Rachel. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com. 
check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's writeaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later.